So you wanna watch a movie, but you don't know which. Choosing the one can be a bitch. But Jared and Drew have perfected the art. So sit back, relax, and trust the dark. It's dark board movie night. What's going on, everyone? I'm Drew. And I'm Jared. And welcome to Dartboard Movie Night, the podcast where we put 20 movies on a board, throw a dart at it, and let the fates decide. We are doing something new today, folks. We have Jared Given in person in Denver, Colorado. Whoop, whoop. Right here. Out here in Denver. In-person podcast. Live and direct. First time we've ever done it. It's really cool. We've got a great setup at Drew's apartment. My first time seeing his place. It's fantastic. I love it out here in Denver. Fantastic. Fantastic is generous, but I'll take it. No, it's truly fantastic. I like this place a lot. And it's great to be in person talking movies with you man this is cool i feel like we should name my place now that you're in my place you don't have we've got to have a name for the recording studio now okay i mean Um, this is i mean it's 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 kind of like i okay well i'll tell you why i love this place so for for anyone listening that hasn't been to my place which honestly is probably less people than i'd like to admit uh My place is kind of a little bit of a, a den. It's a little bit of a burrow in uh, in a, a uh, apartment building. I, it's a outdoor access. Um, I've only got the one wall that kind of faces outward. Everything mm. else is kind of a cave, um, which makes for a great movie watching experience. So I think in some ways it's kind of like I got a little like movie den. I don't know what you would yeah. call it, but well, I think we've been watching a shit ton of movies. So a little bit inside baseball. This might not make it. But I actually ended up testing positive for COVID, so Drew and I have not been able to really do anything. But the, which almost played to our strengths, perfect because we love hanging out and watching <laughs> movies, and we haven't been able to do that together for years, really. Yeah. So it's kind of been nice to not be like, should we go to the brewery? Should we go do something fun? And it's just got to throw our hands up and be like, too bad we can't. We just have to stay here and hang out and watch movies, which is awesome. No. Uh, I was thinking in terms of a name for the studio. What do you think about this? Denver, but D-E-N is capitalized. V-E-R is lowercase. So it's Denver Studios. So it's like amp- amp- amplifying the den, the Denish nature of this abode. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it is a very cozy spot. And uh, it's a great place. I can speak, you know, from experience. Great place to watch a movie. Yeah. Um, but that's the first thing that came to mind. Denver well, Studios. We can bat it around. We can come yeah. up with some other, some alternatives as well, and uh, maybe maybe we'll vote on it at a certain point. Yeah. But either way, it's been uh, it's served us well. We've been you know hanging out on my couch, uh, nursing my my dog with a, a limp leg, Ruby, uh, and we've been watching a bunch of movies. But it's been a good good few days, and yeah, this is uh, really excited to be doing our first in person record. It's pretty fun. Yeah, it's great, dude. It's great. This week, we are covering our second Mike Nichols movie. Uh, we are covering The Birdcage, which is a super fun comedy um, that I'm really excited to cover. This is the second in a row for Jared this week. Yeah. Dude, How do you feel about it? I feel great. I don't know. You're suddenly getting on a little streak. A little bit maybe. of a streak. So for those who might not know, like I was in a hole for a while and still very much am. Drew was, was clubbing me with these, again, darts that I throw. But it was way, way imbalanced. Like it was, it was out of control seesaw. Where were we at anyway in terms of? So I've got the two in a row. Where are the numbers at now? Do you know for like overall, like who, how many we each have? So I've chosen eleven. 
You've chosen six and a half, I guess, for calling calling Sling Blade a half. Sling Blade is going to keep me off balance in the numbers for the because we're never going to have another half because we're doing better now about noticing if a movie is available before we select it. You've got a permanent 0.5 on your number. Fucking like it's like a, I don't know, train station stop at Hogwarts or something. I just can't believe I got this half number just dogging me. But anyway, so six and a half. So it should be seven to 11, but it's just not. Well. It's just not. It's six and a half to eleven, but that again is after two in a row. So before, before we did Alan Partridge, I guess it was like four to eleven, four and a half to eleven. Yeah, you you <laughs> have been coming roaring back. Yeah, this is I'm on. I'm you know, it's a best of infinite series, and I'm I'm definitely making a push. Best of infinite and working, series. <laughs> working my way back, but just just to get to uh, to piece together a couple of darts feels pretty good. Yeah, and interesting too that we hit two comedies in a row. So up until like last week where we did Alan Partridge, we had really didn't have many comedies on the board and hadn't hit any of them. Um, I guess it started. We've started getting some more comedies. I know that Big Daddy's on there. Um, Mostly coming from your side. I've been, you yeah. know, I've been trying to wallow in uh, the really depressing artsy shit, I well, guess, is kind of my my impulse. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, I'm glad that we're getting some lighthearted shit on here. And, you know, I, I still do think that comedies are, are difficult to talk about. I think with this one, we'll have a lot to talk about. But, you know, I, I've, I am glad that we have them on to break up the change of pace. Uh, yeah, for sure. And uh, absolutely, it's nice to kind of have a couple of weeks where we can just kind of chill out with these movies, as opposed to to wallowing in sadness, as I said. For sure, and cool too that even though we've got the two comedies in a row, they're very different comedic sensibilities. Mm, you know, one is very kind of more amplified and crazy, something mm. like Alan Partridge, which is like more of like does could someone like this really exist and this thrown in this crazy scenario. A hilarious movie that Drew and I both really enjoyed, I would say. Um, but then this is something that's like a little bit more believable. You kind of could could see something like this happening. You don't think so? Yeah, no. I, no? This, this movie is absurd to the extreme, but we'll get to that. That's true. There is we'll some craziness in this movie. I guess there, you're the, right. No part of this movie reflects reality. <laughs> you don't way. think so? No, it's, no, come on. It's slapstick, <laughs> man. There, there's some real slapstick in this. <laughs> there definitely is some. Like Drew said, this week's episode is The Birdcage, 1996 comedy uh, by the great Mike Nichols, someone, a director that both... Drew and I love new love for both of us. Oh yeah, pretty recent loves. Yeah, I mean, um, we'll get into our history. I saw the they... graduate years ago, but I mean, other than that, it's it's yeah. Currently, at the time of recording, anyway, it is available with subscription on Hulu, HBO Max, and Amazon Prime, and the Roku channel. And this is not even pay to rent. This is just straight up available. So again, who knows? Um, kind of what the reality of will be by the time this is posted, or if someone is listening to this months and months down the line or whatever, but it should be pretty easy to get. If anyone out there hasn't seen it yet, if people are fans of sort of like big performances, larger than life characters, comedies where uh, actors are taking big cuts and going for something large, uh, I would say definitely give this a shot. I thought yeah. it was really good. No, I think anyone that is super into The Office, especially, uh, especially like the British office. I mean, people who liked Alan Partridge last week, I think this movie has a lot of awkward humor that's built on kind of situational comedy. That's, you know, it's a bunch of characters with big personalities, big characters, like you're saying, um, all just confronting each other in super awkward, funny situations. And yeah, I mean, like, I I think, yeah, if you, if you really gravitate towards that type of humor, you're going to have a great time with this movie. 
yeah, and if you're in the mood for kind of just like a feel good movie, yeah, I mean that'll come up. It's when very we get, pleasant. Very pleasant. When we get to how specifically got on the board too, that's part of it. Um, so other yeah. than the aggressive racism from Gene Hackman, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, but and, it's it's an overall. I would say if I had to find one word for it, it's delightful. Yeah, it's a fun yeah. hang, and it is among the most approachable movies that we've ever had on the show. Yeah. Yeah, because so anyone who's who's listening to this, who has been listening to episodes, not knowing what the fuck we're talking about, because you're not watching the movies, because why the fuck would you watch the Exterminating Angel? Yeah, which you should, but which yes. you should. But I get it. I but get it. I get why you might not. Uh, if you're if you're one of those people, go turn on the Birdcage. It's our forty minute comedy, super breezy, easy watch. You're gonna get to spend time with really awesome people like Robin Williams and Nathan Lane and Diane Weist, and man, it's it's just a fun watch. It's yeah. a good hang. It was a great flick, and as we normally do, we'll be diving into it and just kind of zipping all over the place, but definitely check it out if you haven't seen it yet. For sure, for sure. Well, that begs the question then, Jared, how did the birdcage get on our board? Great question, as always. It really came around from when I was doing the editing of Bad Day at Black Rock. So you had mentioned how that movie came on the list, because that was a Drew choice, Mm. and you had heard... You had seen published somewhere a list of 10 movies that Paul Thomas Anderson really liked. I don't know if it was asking Paul directly or if it was kind of compiled from interviews. So as I was doing the edit, I was like, you know what? I'm going to try to find that list and throw it in the show notes or something and, and check with you if it's the one you were mentioned. Which we'll, we'll put that in the show notes again this week since that's where it came from. But yeah. Yeah. Great, great idea. So I was kind of just perusing the list to see if I had the right one. And Bad Day at Black Rock was mentioned. And then somewhere else in the list, The Birdcage was mentioned. Our first episode was Catch-22. And we both really liked that movie and have both... Well, I, I have loved everything I've seen that Mike Nichols has done. Oh, I'm a massive fan. He's incredible. And I, I, I hesitate to say kind of maybe not as well known by our generation as he should be. You know, maybe it's because he was a little bit older than, say, the Scorseses and the people that we kind of grew up really identifying with from an art yeah. standpoint. But somehow Nichols was, a, I feel, a little missed by our generation. So we've had this opportunity through the show to kind of catch up on some of his work. And so I saw that the birdcage and Paul Thomas Anderson said something to the effect of it's one of his favorite feel good movies. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that just sounds good. I love Mike Nichols. I love Robin Williams. I'm, I like feel good movies. And I wanted to see something where he was a lot further on in his career. So this movie came out in 96. Last time we talked on this show about a Mike Nichols movie was 71, 72? 70. 70, Catch-22. And we talked about it then, but he was a director on a huge hot streak, had never failed before. It was Mm -hmm. his third movie. So this is much further along in his career. where He's had a lot of ups and downs that he's gone through. This is decades later. Well, yeah, and I mean, his... His 80s and 90s are nothing but ups and downs. I mm-hmm. mean, this movie is coming hot on the heels of, I want to say, Wolf. Uh, yeah. was the movie he did before this, which was a colossal failure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was like a try, an attempt to revive the Universal Mar- Monster movie with, you know, the Wolfman. Uh, but it was just called Wolf, and it starred Jack Nicholson and, and, you know, crazy prosthetics and, you know, doing weird werewolf shit uh which is sounds great i really want to watch that movie <laughs> maybe it'll get on the board someday i i've I'd considered it. it uh just it's the, funny you mentioned wolf because i he, hearing a little snippet of an interview for 
for the birdcage. He was talking about Elaine May, who we'll surely get into. Mm-hmm. But he was like talking about the time that her contribution has like saved him. He's like, he's like, she saved my ass during Wolf, or I guess how much someone could possibly save my ass with that movie. So he was just <laughs> bashing it himself. He does seem like a really frank director with his own work. Yeah. And he will take his own stuff to task and and rake it over the coals. No, definitely. And, and you know, it just makes me all the more excited to fill in the gaps in his career and kind of get, get the rest of the context there. But, you know, we're getting into Nichols a little bit, but I kind of, before we do that, I just want to talk general reactions. What was your overall reaction to your first watch of The Birdcage? Because before, sorry, I, I asked that question, but I, first I want to say, this is a movie that I grew up on. It's a movie that I've watched probably 20 times in my life. Like, I've seen this movie so much and it you know it's so ingrained in my childhood so you know as you, for you coming to this as a, a a new viewing what's your what was your experience of it i liked it a lot it really it checked all the boxes of kind of what i was looking for and why i wanted to get on the board i wanted a feel good movie it was that i knew it was going i knew it was about a gay couple i didn't know much about the movie but i knew it was about a gay couple and I knew it was set in Miami. That was kind of the limit. I knew that Robin Williams was in it. I was pleasantly surprised by so much of the movie. One of it being um, how grounded Robin Williams is. You know, we've seen from a lot of his comedy work before this and, and after it, all sorts of stuff. He tended to play kind of the bigger character. It was really fun to see him play a smaller one in this. And... All, almost all of the performances blew me away. I did not know that Gene Hackman was going to be in the movie. That was another pleasant surprise. He was fantastic. And the movie is sneakily gorgeous. And there's some sneakily amazing, not even sneakily, some just in-your-face great shots in the movie that are kind of peppered all over the place. I, w- I would say sneakily. I think this movie's sneaky gorgeous. Yeah, it's sneaky gorgeous. I think there are a couple shots that just hit you over the head. It's like you well you you're we're, we're, you will, you will notice that this is well. Great. Do you think that I don't know? I mean, I wonder if because I think like even the shots because you know watching we watched this together, mm-hmm. and so we were reacting to things in real time with each other, and and I think you know not to jump ahead too far, but I I want to bring up specifically the shot of the uh, ship behind Robin Williams and Nathan Lane while they're sitting kind of having a conversation. Now I know personally that this is a real shot. You are are denying this you're saying it's a green screen i i am 100 percent sure that it's you're 100 percent sure or you think you're right not to not to turn this in the direction of the the argument over this but yes i am i i don't know that i'm right okay but i know that i'm right but you don't have proof but you're confident that i don't know but i know okay because i i think that is a green screen but the reason i bring that up is just to say that's a shot that we both reacted to and we were like yeah that's a great that's an incredible shot but I wonder if that shot is something that an average casual viewer is going to be like, oh, that's a great shot. Because I think it is just very, like, it doesn't call attention to itself, really. Like, when you think about it, it calls attention to itself because you and I were both, like, trying to figure out how they did it. But to someone who's not immediately trying to figure out how did they do that, is that going to register as a great shot to them? Tough to know. But, I mean, I was still thinking about, like, the opening shot in the film, that is... That's a pretty impressive shot, and it's kind of like a I think ballsy. that one's that calls attention to it. Yeah, I think there's a couple of, and I would argue that the ship shot at the bench does call attention because it's so striking that massive ship right behind. Them. I'm but just I saying, know. look, you I watched this movie so many times as a kid. I never, I mean, 
to be fair, it's probably because I saw this for the first time as like a six year old. But yeah. if if I so keeping that in mind, I don't know. I up until yeah. that viewing with you, I didn't think about that shot that way. Interesting. So maybe maybe that's so then. But that that is kind of a cool thing about it is like it's a gorgeous movie. And Nichols just defies logic. This guy who came from the stage and we'll, you know, we've mentioned him before, but we'll talk about him again as we get into it for this movie. Well, it doesn't, it, it we, doesn't make sense that he's this good visually too. It's crazy. Well, as we mentioned before, I mean, this is our second Mike Nichols movie being covered on the pod after catch 22. We both loved catch 22. It's a fucking awesome movie. So different than this. So different. Um, I mean, just showing his versatility, but exactly. I think you're right. I think this is in terms of like, if we were to compare this to another Mike Nichols movie, I'm going to compare this a lot closer to uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf than mm-hmm. I do to Catch-22. Much more stagey, much more like easy, simple setups, but that are letting like the scene play out within the frame. No, not like cutting around too much. Not that he like cuts around a bunch in Catch-22, but it's a lot more epic scale. Whereas this is just people in a room talking. Yeah. And the graduates like that too, in this vein of like being kind of smaller indoors a little bit. I think he gets a little bit more like chaotic with his stuff in that movie, but yes, I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. But point being so different than catch 22, which is just this crazy jamboree of all this stuff going on. Um, And then this is, you know, again, it's got some, some crazy ambitious shots in it for sure. But it's it's a totally different type of movie. It's, yeah. it's sweet. What does this do to your overall feelings on Mike Nichols? I mean, like now that you've seen him in more traditional straight comedy. Yeah. Um, it just continues to add. All these movies add to it. I will say, if if we had gotten to this movie before Catch-22, I don't know if I would have liked it quite as much. Or I should say, I would have been a little worried about... Um, exploring more nickel stuff in the future. And what I mean by that is um, this is an awesome movie, The Birdcage, mm. but it's kind of a straight-up movie. Uh, and I would be nervous if if I only had this these sort of movies as context. That is like, oh, is he one of these guys who just kind of does just kind of traditional movies? Like we've mentioned in the podcast in the past, like people like Ron Howard or Clint Eastwood who make good movies, but they're kind of just, just movies. The fact that we also have in our viewing history, Catch-22, like this sort of kind of absurd, surreal, strange movie that you that you kind of have to roll with. It's mm. a difficult watch in a lot of ways. Makes me like him even more. And then when I see something like The Birdcage, that is a little bit more of a traditional structure and a little bit more of a traditional movie, I don't have that fear of like, oh, does this guy just make kind of vanilla movies Mm-hmm. Not, again, not to say the birdcage is vanilla, but no, no, no. But I, but you get you, what I think you get what I'm. I trying get exactly to. what you're saying yeah. because this movie is not overtly artistic. It's not going for yeah. like, the, like it is. I I think you and I now having seen both four plus uh, Mike Nichols movies at this point, I think we both are seeing the stylistic through lines between all these different movies. But I don't think they're necessarily obvious unless you do that exercise. Yeah. You know, we've we've watched now. Uh, I mean. In test records, we did Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and The Graduate. We both watched Catch-22 for the show, and now we've watched this for the show. So we've done four different movies, and it's all been, like, focused watching where we're trying to, like, really, like, understand what, like, 
who is this guy as an artist? Yeah. So I think watching it with that eye, you get that experience. But I don't know that you get that if you don't have that eye. And I think that's by design. I think yeah. he wants his movies to be approachable in that way. Yeah, certainly feels that way with this one. Like it just is a super, super approachable movie, you know. And um, but again, I'm glad that he goes beyond that and yeah. does and takes risks and does really challenging things. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Yeah. Um, so he just seems really diverse and it real seems like he can do a ton of different stuff. And this movie, the birdcage specifically just made me like him more. I think what this movie illuminates for me on Mike Nichols is just how much of an actor's director he is. And not to say that he was, he isn't that always, mm -hmm. but I think this movie watching it late stage Nichols, you know, and just watching the way that like, you can really tell that Nathan Lane and Robin Williams and Gene Hackman and Diane Weist, they're all giving themselves to, to him as a director. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're playing, they're all playing in territories that could be really divisive. You know what I mean? Right. Um, not to turn it away to the actors too much, but I mean, cause we'll, we'll talk about all these guys individually, but I think if we're talking about just their performances in general, I think what's really interesting is that, um, Robin Williams is playing against type. Nathan Lane, he's not necessarily playing against type because he's played like the kind of over-the-top character before, but he's really leaning into it in this, you know? Like, and, and I think like a lesser director would tell him to rein that in. You know, and and Hackman going for just the just the uber asshole fucking senator role, like he's going for it. You know, the all these characters are are they're doing things that in lesser hands would be very like unlikable. Yeah. You know, because like Nathan Lane could be offensive, Robin Williams exactly. could be an asshole, Gene Hackman could be like not asshole enough. All of them could be like. If if you if you pull back on the reins a hair on any of those characters, they don't work. Or or if they don't trust, if the performers don't trust the director enough that he's going to edit them properly. Then or or that they can they can take the risks that he is recommending they do. All of these performances, perhaps with the exception of Robin Williams, because it's somewhat the most understated, um, but they all risk failure at a pretty high level well and like you said they, they risk being offensive yeah. they risk um being foolish all of them they risk that's making, not just the gay characters oh yeah all of them like you said the hackman guy that's a great example and diane weiss could be just a, a trampled upon housewife yeah and and they 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 a, a lot of them pretty much all of them take huge risks and i think it's because they trusted mike nichols so much that they had the the room and flexibility to do that and really go for it. And also, just to kind of pin back towards towards Nichols too, mm -hmm. we as you said, we've seen Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, The Graduate, and Catch Twenty Two. I would argue this is the most straight up comedy film of his that we've seen, which is really interesting. Like all of those movies, Catch and the others mentioned, have strings of comedy throughout them, and it varies. They all have a very good sense of humor to yeah, them. Yeah, absolutely. But I would not call any of them comedies. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe like with the up. exception of Catch Twenty Two, because that's just a, that's just a full on straight scene. satire. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's fascinating, and we'll probably jump into it real soon. Like Nichols's background was comedy for a yeah. long time on the stage. Elaine May is a fucking legend. 
She is the comedy partner of Mike Nichols, and she's the writer of this movie. So we have to talk about Elaine May. We mentioned her, I'm sure, in the Catch-22 episode. I don't remember how deep we got into Nichols and May as a con- concept, but uh, they were a comedy duo. They were top of the, their game. They were the most famous comedians in sketch comedians in the world, probably at the time that they were going around in the late 50s and the early 60s. They split up to both pursue different filmmaking careers, um, but they always were friends and they always collaborated on things throughout their career. And this is one of those those collaborations. So as an Elaine May uh, script and as someone who just watched his first Elaine May directed film, yeah. The Heartbreak Kid. Heartbreak Kid. How do you tough feel? Tough to find, Heartbreak Kid. Tough to find, but anyone listening to this, if Worth. you like this kind of comedy, The Heartbreak Kid is like a top fiver all time of awkward yeah. humor. Yeah, The Heartbreak Kid is way more awkward than this movie and in a good way and not well, not that one is superior to the other but but yeah. similarly balancing tones yes and it's and it was i'm really glad that i got to see the heartbreak kid before seeing this me too because it kind of turned me on to elaine may's style from a writing and her sensibilities comedically the dartboard seems to have a mind of its own because as soon as you watch the heartbreak kid we hit the birdcage yeah it was like within a week or two i want to say yeah um she just seems like a total boss is hilarious and did a great job writing this movie and, and had a lot of insights that she provided to the character work and stuff that yeah. and Nichols was in the interviews I heard effusive in, in his praise and, and just kind of, it just seemed like he was having fun working with her again. And I think they, they, they channeled back into their history really quick in terms of what led them to like each other to begin with well and i rediscovered very quickly you really do feel the warmth of that relationship coming through this and you you just see that nichols understands how to take her language and put it on the screen yeah it's so witty it's so like i i think like and this is not even her best work but i mean this is just it, it really feels like elaine may's voice coming through this movie oh yeah there are so many great lines in the movie too an example is in the beginning when Nathan Lane is like talking about look what Robin has look at Robin Williams character has done to me. Like now I'm like I'm short, I'm fat, <laughs> I'm, I'm blah 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 like runs down these lists of things and Robin Williams just says I made you short. <laughs> it's just like such a funny joke. And then another one I loved was when like um Diane Weiss who plays uh, the senator's wife in the film She's like saying, like, there might be a solution to get us out of this. It's like when the whole catastrophe of the senator dying in bed with the prostitute is He's surfaced. Dead. And uh, whose bed? Yeah, <laughs> that was just that was so good. But um, she says there may be a solution, and Hackman says, "What death? That didn't work for Jackson, and that was the senator who had died." It's just like that. Just the writing is so fucking funny in this movie. She is so dark. Her, yeah. her sense of humor is so acid-tongued. Yeah. You know, and like this movie is, you know, we say that it's like delightful and nice and joyous and whatever, but like it is that, but it also has this like this fucking edge to it. And, and it comes through, especially in the Hackman character. Oh, for sure. Like you and I are on the couch howling at the fact that the senator has like is, was found dead in bed with an underage prostitute. It's like, that's a dark joke if you really peel that layer in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, there's and, a racism and the racial built component, into yeah, it. There's yeah. a racial component. 
and we're just cackling at just uh, at how like. I mean, I guess the humor underneath all that all is the hypocrisy of the position has been thrown in his face. But I'm ruined. I'm ruined. <laughs> yeah, he has zero empathy towards his quote unquote. It's only colleague. about his his yeah. personal stakes in it. God, you mentioned it too. When they're ramping up into the layers of how bad the like he's on the phone, he's first getting the news, and I think he says, "Who's bed? A prostitute? A minor?" And black, he like puts the phone and just fuck, slams it down. I'm ruined. <laughs> but the the fact that black is the the worst thing of those yeah. to him is like that tells you everything about you that can see character. It, like in his eyes, he's doing that phone call thing we all do, where we're kind of looking off into space and processing. Like I feel like until the racial component is brought in, which is the last one, he's he looks like he's thinking we might still be able to spin this <laughs> it's like that's the one that's just like no. i was okay until we got there <laughs> yeah this is this is oh now it's truly unsalvageable it's so awful but i mean like she she wants you to hate that character in that of course, moment like, of she's, course. yeah like um anyway elaine may's a legend like everyone needs to go watch all of her movies she only made four of them but they are all incredible the movies that she wrote and directed are a new leaf the Heartbreak Kid, Mikey and Nikki, and Ishtar. And I think all of them are brilliant. Mikey and Nikki is the most dramatic of them. Um, personally, I you know, I love The Heartbreak Kid and uh, Ishtar the most. Ishtar is the most underrated movie ever made. Uh, it gets such a bad rap for no reason. We might have to watch that this weekend while you're still here because it's yeah, that good. But anyway, Elaine May is great. Everyone needs to go uh, educate themselves on yeah. Elaine May. Let's move on to some of the actors. I mean, we need to talk about where people are at in their careers right now. I mean, yeah. Robin Williams, it, we, we have, have to, to talk about first. It. We have to start with Robin. We have to. Rest in peace. One of the greatest people to ever grace this planet, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Um, I, you know, Robin is a guy that I have idolized for a long fucking time. Mm. He was my childhood. Like, watching Robin. Aladdin is my all-time favorite animated movie. Mm. Uh, he played such a huge part in my childhood uh, you know mrs doubtfire uh, fucking flubber even like I, I i was just the biggest robin williams fan growing up when he died that was the most devastating celebrity death death i've ever experienced and, wow. and still is to this day mm-hmm. what really hurt me about robin dying was like this was a person who embodied being a good person to me yeah. and this movie i think like brings a lot of that across I, he's a guy that just Every every anecdote you hear of people meeting Robin Williams, he knew how to just touch people, and he had a way of um, he he had a general approach to life was like I want to leave every interaction with people feeling better than they did when they walked into it, yeah. and that's really fucking powerful. It's hard to imagine a better way to approach life than the thought of I'm going to try to make every interaction improve someone's life whenever I can. And obviously maybe that burden was a lot for him. Who knows? Hard to speculate, but yeah, again, it's hard to imagine that not being a good way to approach life. Yeah. But he's in this movie. I think we get a really interesting side of him. I mean, like to talk about where Robin Williams is at in his career at this point, 
I mean, you know, I mentioned Aladdin. That was in 19, what, 92, I want to say that that came out. That sounds right. Um, But I mean, that literally like animated movies have never been the same because of that movie, because of his, uh, the way that he took over that movie and being a celebrity in a voice acting role was was something that was unheard of at the time. Um, So that movie changed everything. You know, he's coming fresh off of Mrs. Doubtfire as well. Um, He hadn't really done too many big things uh, just previous to this, I guess the most recent movie that was released that he was in before The Birdcage was Jumanji, which was another formative movie in my childhood. Yeah. He did that just before this, you said? 95, and this was 96, 95. yeah. So he was, I mean, he was born on a hot streak, but he was he was really clicking. He was becoming a huge movie star at this point. And also, let's not forget, like movies like Goodwill Hunting and stuff, they, they, they those, those hadn't happened yet. Well, that was the year right after this. Right after this. But point being, like, I feel like the American public hadn't seen a lot of subdued Robin Williams. It's actually interesting, really, to think about him going from, you know, Mrs. Doubtfire in 93 Mm -hmm. to Jumanji in 95, which is him basically just playing a a dramatic character. Like, if you think about that movie, he's not comedic in that at all. He's just a man child. He's a traumatized child in that movie. Um, But then, you know, the Birdcage is another kind of step in a more dramatic direction. He's playing more the straight man to Nathan Lane's absurd character. And I think I think it's really fucking fascinating to think that like this is kind of a step in that goodwill hunting direction and then he gets nominated for an Oscar the next year. I mean it's we all know now through hindsight that that he had had this ability to play any any space of the The Fisher King spectrum. showed that he could do drama. Yeah. In 91 and Dead Poet Society in 89 oh, yeah. as well. So he he had already had a couple of nominations, I guess, at this point. But point being, like, it seemed like he kind of went back to you know his his roots a little bit, and now he's kind of getting back into the drama. Yeah, and I just loved all the subtlety in this performance. I mean, we were doing a kind of a speed rewatch today, and there's really only one scene that I could see that he went quote unquote full on Robin Williams. It's the scene where Nathan Lane is working on the new dance number. And Robin Williams is showing all these potential dance moves that the person on stage with Nathan Lane can do, but internally. Mm-hmm. So there's this flash of energy, different dance moves from Madonna to a bunch of other people I had never heard of, compressed within like, you know, 15, 20 seconds of physical explosion. Outside of that, it's just the side of Robin that I have not seen a ton of and I loved. P- kind of playing it straight, kind of playing it. Like a like a just a kind of a normal person, and it's just great seeing him kind of exercise that muscle when we all know he has the ability to go so big and so cartoonish with it. He's letting a lot of the other actors in this movie play in that space. He is doing something kind of smaller, and by being smaller, he's letting everyone else be bigger. You know, it's the great trope of you know the straight man versus you know all of that sort of shit. It's classic comedy. But it's just cool that he's kind of taking the back seat in the way. And in a way, it makes my eyes get more drawn to him. Because yeah. it's a side of him I'm not super familiar with. playing against type. Yes. And it's and he's doing such a good job at it. Yeah. It might be my favorite performance of his that I've seen so far. Whoa. There's a lot I haven't. There's a lot I haven't. That's big. Yeah. I mean, that says a lot. Well, how good is his John Wayne impression in this movie, by the way? <laughs> Like he like was transform like speaking of transform. Get off of your horse yeah, and head into the saloon. Head into the saloon. It's like a perfect John Wayne. 
with even the, the way his mouth is shaped. You know, he, he gets it all down. Because a lot of people talk about kind of impressions and impersonations. And there's people like Jim Carrey who do it in the face. Mm-hmm. They have just some sort of control over how they look and they can get it that way. And then there's others like a Bill Hader to do a more modern example who can just get the voice down so so close. Robin kind of seemed like he could do both. Yeah. He could do the face stuff and then also do the vocal impressions too. And that John Wayne's just one example. He's the consummate performer. He can do yeah. all of it. Yeah, he's, um, he was the man. Well, I, speaking of the John Wayne impression bit, I mean, how'd you feel about Nathan Lane in this movie? Uh, speaking of his, so, his, Nathan, his John Wayne walk. <laughs> so great. Again, going back to the risk, the specifically Nathan Lane is taking in this movie, he could look like such a fool. He could be going just a bridge too far to the point where this is not a believable character. Um, and he could be to the point of being offensive. None of those things, from my perspective, ended up happening. This person seemed like a real person. They were very funny, um, but charming, loving. And you pointed it out, too, when we watched it today, how much the community seems to love him. We get these little scenes of him going into a bakery or a butcher shop and interacting with people who know him. Everyone seems to love him, and how couldn't you? This person seems like they're obviously very overly dramatic and very can be over the top, but very loving person. And the that scene is instrumental to making him not a cartoon. Yes, because he could be the flamboyant gay guy. I mean, he is, mm-hmm. and and like in a movie that didn't have respect for that character, that would be the punchline that he is flamboyant, but it's not the punchline because his flamboyantness makes him endearing. And when he's in the market and you you're seeing him interact with these vendors and it's just like, Oh, clearly this, this guy is like a fixture in their lives and he's like a good person that they respect and like, they're happy to see him. And like, and you know, in a lesser movie, the joke would be him being flamboyant and them looking at him with a side eye in those yeah. scenes. You know what I mean? Well, and think too when before that scene where he goes into the bakery, we only ever really see him kind of melting down a bit before going on stage, mm-hmm. and then we see um, his on stage uh, persona. We see him being difficult. Yeah, we see him at kind of amplified states, and then um, that scene. And again, it's only two or three scenes after that we've been introduced to Nathan Lane's character, we see him out just in the real world, Mm -hmm. not on stage, not dealing with sort of anxiety before getting on stage. And we get, we get a kind of a closer look at the real person. And that leads into one of my favorite scenes in the movie. He returns with the bags and Robin Williams gives him the information that their son is planning on getting married. And I just, Love that scene, specifically Nathan Lane in that scene. It's a nice wide shot. Nathan Lane has dropped the groceries off. It's a long take. Hank Azaria is in the background. He's like made the coffee. And it's just a a great scene. I love Nathan Lane in it. He's talking about um, how he's upset with how he reacted the night before because he thought there was some kind of cheating going on. Um, He's just fiddling with with laundry baskets and with a laundry basket in front of him. And he's making really serious points about their relationship, talking about how you're always pushing me away from your son, like you don't want me to get there. And it's just like a very, um, to me, it seemed like a very real conversation. And this information is flooding in. And it's, again, nice long take, doesn't cut, stays wide. We get a little bit of the sense of 
of Nichols, his, his stage side, and his and because and, he did used to direct a lot of plays before movies. We get a vibe of that in shots like this. There's a lot of scenes like that in the movie. Just all plays out in a it wide just, They let the actors play within the frame and just don't do a ton of cuts. They let the scene breathe, and I really love that. I'm glad that you brought that scene up because I think it also illustrates another thing that I love about this movie, all kind of tying into the way that the Nathan Lane character is treated. But I think it's really beautiful that this movie gives us a portrait of a really healthy gay family where clearly like the only two parental figures were two gay men and they raised a good kid who like is healthy and normal and like like yeah. it's it's normal you got to think like the context of when this movie came out in 96 people were still saying that a, a a kid raised by two gay parents whether they're female male whatever cannot be healthy because that's not a traditional family unit like yeah so you think about it in that context and this movie is showing you this this child has grown up with this for 20 years of his life and and it and is fu- completely is normal is you know and we'll get to my feelings on Dan Futterman I think he's the weakest point of this movie but I think the what the this scene is illustrating is like this is totally healthy and like this Nathan Lane character has filled this maternal you know instincts you know that that people think is so necessary in these relationships cool if you think that Nathan Lane's character fulfilled that yeah, in this relationship. He's practically and, and abreast, as they said. <laughs> he's practically abreast. Um, but Another I think, great line. I think that's fucking cool that this movie normalized yeah. that in such a such a big way. Yeah, and it's very complimentary of it too. Not only is the evidence apparent in in the way the son interacts with the world, like it's clear they've done a good job just as an example. But also like the biological mother of the son says you guys did a great job raising him and things like that. So so the movie is is complimentary both in how it shows the character, but even just straight up says it. Like characters have mentioned that they did a great job. Absolutely. Um, and you're right. Yeah. At the time, that was something that uh, wasn't being said a lot. And but it's th- cool. But that only works because it feels genuine in the movie. Yeah. And that's a testament to Nichols and May and all the actors involved yeah. that they, they sell this. And, and and going back to specifically to like Nathan Lane, I loved that scene where Robin Williams is going to talk to the biological mother and Nathan Lane is waiting in the reception area of this like body gym empire that this woman has built. I don't really know the story there. And there's that receptionist who's reading Nietzsche for some reason. It's so funny to me. It's a really funny touch. But there's so- shots of Lane just sitting there by himself waiting and kind of being nervous about what might be happening or whatever. And he like rattles the coffee table by touching it. And just, it's just so funny the way he's, he's moving. He's sitting there and reacting to things that happen just by himself is hysterical to me and really funny. I will say there were a couple of times I'm like, okay, I'm not buying that. He's this, um, hapless isn't the right word, but remember the time, like, He's shortly after that, actually, he storms out of the office and gets in the car and he kind of starts driving the car and it like revs up a bit and he makes like a whoop. Like he's like, was this person not drive a car? Like, you know, so there were times where I thought his sort of kind of whooping and hollering seemed a little excessive, but maybe it was true to the character. I don't know. Yeah. 
But but overall, I love the performance. I, I think it's fun to watch him just play to the rafters. I mean, mm-hmm. Nathan Lane is a Broadway legend. I think all of us know him best as Timon from uh, The Lion King. <sighs> Didn't know that. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, he's Timon from The Lion King. I mean, he. I remember him fondly from Mouse Hunt. Was was I, I saw that movie dozens of times as a kid. Yep. So much fun. Um, those those are kind of the big ones. But I mean, he's done some TV stuff here and there. But he's he's a New York actor. He's been in New York for years. He works on Broadway constantly. He's that guy. Yeah. That and guy and I mean sure. that comes through the performance. Mm-hmm. But anyway, let's uh, let's move it on here. We got to talk about Gene Hackman. Yes, we do. Holy hell. Like I said, I didn't know he was going to be in this movie. So, okay. So you didn't even know until the credits rolled on the, the yes. beginning of this movie. Yeah. Did I say it out loud? I can't remember. Was I don't Gene remember. Hackman? I yeah. think I did. Because I, I really like Gene Hackman. And, you know, recently I had seen The French Connection for the first time. When I was a kid in high school, I loved movies like Behind Enemy Lines. And did, I, you but see, I, did you ever see uh, uh, Bonnie and Clyde? No. Never, never seen Bonnie and Clyde. But I... I always saw Hackman as like more of a serious guy. And I remember, I think the movie is the heartbreakers the movie where like, um, heartbreakers with Jennifer love Hewitt and yeah. Sigourney Weaver. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, there's this mother daughter con artist team. Mm-hmm. And Hackman was hilarious in that movie as the Mark that they're trying to take down. this like tobacco executive or something yep. like that who refuses to admit that cigarettes are unhealthy. So I had seen a little bit of his comedy, muscle flexed in that role but I thought in my mind he was more like a De Niro meaning almost always did dramas but occasionally would sprinkle in a comedy role and his comedy turns are somewhat playing off of that dramatic yes that's what I had that's what I thought before seeing this Um, very happy to have that thought uh, destroyed and just be like no he actually got his start which I found out after seeing this movie on improv stages, so comedies actually he came up in Second City, uh, and and so got started in comedy. Second City from Chicago, from the Chicago. improv troupe and school. Yep, it was just awesome seeing him be so damn funny, and again, kind of a straightish character, but so over the top with like, his sort of like bigotry, I guess, or I don't even know. Well, it's also it's a very self-aware performance mm-hmm. because he knows the persona he gives off is a very like hardline conservative, you know, kind of attitude, even though he's, he's been a, a from what I understand, a very liberal uh, person, like mm-hmm. most of his life. I think I, I want to say that's true. I think the assumptions he's, he's leaning into the assumptions that could be made about him just based on how he looks in a way. He looks like a very sort of straight laced, Maybe well, conservative all, white guy. By all accounts, he's a very prickly guy in mm-hmm. general. Like Blank Check has been covering uh, Sam Raimi, and I rewatched The Quick and the Dead, which is a movie you need to watch. I mean, it came in a run where he was doing just nothing but westerns at the time. He did mm. Unforgiven, and then it was like Unforgiven to Quick and the Dead. He did like six different westerns. It was crazy. Yeah, but that movie. I, the anecdotes are like Sam Raimi loves to move the camera and do weird, crazy shit with it. And at some point, uh, Raimi was like, okay, Gene, so I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I need you to be like here on this particular shot. And uh, apparently Gene was like, I'm not doing any of that. <laughs> you know, so he's he's just one yeah. of those guys. He's like, I want to come in. I want to do the work. And kinda I want to like Spencer Tracy. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of just bit. like, no, I'm not doing that. We're just going to get this done. Let's move on. But yeah, you're right. If he is, if he is maybe kind of toying with this perception of him, right or wrong, about 
being kind of difficult or leaning obstinate. into the prickliness. Yeah, yeah. Then it then it and it's working super fucking well because he. I honestly think he made me laugh the most out of anyone in this movie. Yeah, which is saying something because there's a lot of very funny performances in this film. I but will say the Ohio me. foliage is underrated. Oh God, the foliage! He also pronounces it foliage. Foliage, and he goes off on that, and it's like such a perfect like senator speech where he's talking about leaving, driving from the north and coming down to where it's warm Purple and seeing Mountains this majesty. great country of ours. And it's just like, oh, you want to gag when you hear it. It's just that <laughs> The cutaway to normal... Robin Williams literally looking like he's asleep with his eyes open is yeah. my favorite. <laughs> God, the foliage. Although Ohio is underrated. It's just like, oh my God, my toenails are being ripped off. It's just so bad, but <laughs> so funny. And we mentioned it earlier, that scene of him on the phone figuring out how <laughs> the hot water he was in. That was funny. His candy addiction. Also, his faces were really funny. Like the when he gets caught addiction. on the ladder outside of the house and the reporters are swarming him. Well, so, okay. So you talked about this movie being like grounded in some reality. And those are the scenes that, that stick out to me as like, that's absurd. Yeah. The, the way that they frame that of him, like that's climbing true. up the ladder, talking through the window to his family and then turning around and the mics being thrust in and the spotlight going <laughs> on him. That's a fucking cartoon. That is. You're right. You're right. That is very kind of Alan Partridge in a way. Yeah. And actually two weeks in a row, two pretty funny bits of people coming out of windows. Let's just say that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but you're right. There are obviously times where that we're like, Things get absurd. Everything involving Hank Azaria, and we'll get to Hank Azaria, but... Very dialed up and very absurd. Oh, yeah. But, I don't know, I guess the the question is, what's more absurd, a hostage situation or, like, to, to, uh, you know, a gay couple having to pretend to be straight for a night, you know? But I get your point. There is a lot of absurdity in this movie, and a lot of it comes from Hackman, and he, he was absolutely killing me in this movie i thought he was so funny so funny um no i mean hackman hackman's a guy that i've only grown an appreciation over the years watching more and more of his performances and uh yeah i think hackman in self-deprecating form is is my favorite and that's definitely this yeah i do want to briefly mention diane weist i mean she fucking rules she's an incredible actor that has shown up in a ton of great, great stuff. She's most famous for Hannah and her sisters, uh, bullets over Broadway, Edward Scissorhands. Um, I mean, she's been in a ton of stuff, but, uh, I, I one time heard an anecdote that, uh, Leo DiCaprio said Diane Weist is his favorite actor, which I think is fucking awesome. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. I love when actors kind of do hat tips to other performances or other things that you wouldn't expect them to say. I remember seeing Emma Stone in an interview say that her favorite performance is John Candy in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. And I just love when big stars say something that maybe I wouldn't expect. And also, that is a great performance. Yeah, you expect them to say something like, you know, fucking Meryl Streep or Daniel Day-Lewis Meryl Streep in Doubt. And and good choice. But just always so cool to have your expectations. And something like Leonardo DiCaprio saying Diane Weiss... It's like, didn't see that coming, but I see it. I see it in this movie. She's awesome. I think that this character could, in lesser hands, feel like a stereotype of a shitty housewife that just, like, is getting trampled on by by Gene Hackman. But 
they're very clear in this movie that she has her own angles and her own machinations going on behind the scenes. And on top of that, she is simultaneously a very sweet, like, like innocent type person. Like Mm -hmm. there's some weird alchemy between, you know, the innocence of this character and the calculatedness of her that I find really fucking funny. Yeah. And how much of her, her, her kind of innocence and her tone is a construct. Cause I believe that she, I, when she says like, somebody has to like me best, that's coming from a real place. Yeah, of that's, like, that's real. I am not getting the love I need, and but also she's also using the situation of the marriage to be like, maybe we can manipulate this yeah. into like a political strategy. Yeah. It's all, she almost has like a sort of game of Thrones sort of like using marriage as a weapon, sort of like old school political bent to her. Yeah. And on second viewing today, I was really picking up on a lot more of her very subtle, but recognizable tonal sh- shifts in her voice where she's just trying, like she's sometimes she's pretending to be this really kind of sweet ditzy person, but you can tell when the act drops and she's like her, her voice changes just a little. Actually, you know what it reminds me of? When we were watching Bound, we were talking about Jennifer Tilly and how she would do subtle manipulations in her voice of when she was trying to seem ditzy in front of the men yeah. to increase her control on the situation. I got a little bit of a vibe of that in this performance too. A hundred percent. Yeah. No, it's a really it's a it's a sneakily subtle performance. And if people ever watch this movie a second or third time, I or even just the first time, keep an eye out for it because there's a lot more going on under the surface than it might seem on first viewing. Really, really good, really solid performance. Absolutely. Well, that's the core four, but I mean, we definitely need to, there, there are a few supporting performances we need to, to mention. Um, we'll start with the couple at the center of this whole thing. I mean, Dan Futterman and Callista Flockhart play the young couple that are trying to get married. Callista Flockhart is the daughter of Gene Hackman and Diane Weist, and, and uh, Dan Futterman is playing the, the son of Nathan Lane and Robin Williams. But how did you feel about both of them? Flockhart, I thought, was the weakest performance in the film. That's interesting. Yeah. Why do you say that? I don't know. I think... Um, I think she sells a character that should be very hateable on the surface. I think the the character could be perceived as hateable on the surface because she sets up this whole fucking she misconception sets up thing. But which, by the way, the basic premise of this movie should not work on a base level. Yeah, she has no problem with uh, you know the 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 gay the gay relationship that's that's involved in this filming. So that I think is kind of a part of her salvation. She's just trying to make, make things kind of easier. Something I don't really buy her in this movie. I don't know. She always kind of looks like a deer in the headlights and never really seems like she knows what's going on and even if that's built and baked into the character, I just didn't really respond to it. I don't think she was atrocious. She wasn't like pulling me out of the movie, but I didn't feel like she was uh, capturing my attention at all. See, it's weird. Like, I think I should hate her character, but I think she seems likable enough that I don't mind that she's putting them in this situation. And that shouldn't work. I mean, we should say Callista Flockhart is famous for being Allie McBeal for fucking, you know, like a decade. Like, she was on TV forever. Uh, She's, you know, a very famous actor. Uh, But... This was, you know, very early in her career, and I don't know. I, I think, I think she sells this in a way that it shouldn't, it shouldn't be able to be sold. Yeah. So I had a bit of a 
of a change on second viewing, where on first viewing I would have probably said that the Suns' performance was my least favorite. That's my least favorite. Yeah, what was his name again? Dan Futterman. Dan Futterman. Something about seeing it a second time today, I don't even know if I can put it into words, but I just bought it more. Okay. I was like, you know what? This is actually good, I think. I originally would have loved... Specifically Dan Futterman, you're saying. Futterman specifically. I was like, I think I really like this performance, actually. I could not disagree more. Interesting. That's cool. And I don't know if the conversation will be interesting because I don't... I don't know if I'll be able to put it into words, like I said, but I, I really I think I, I think get, he yeah. is a wet blanket on this movie. Really? That every time he's on screen, I think the movie is lesser for him being there. Mm. So you really don't like it? I, I think he's the biggest problem with the movie. Wow. Yeah, I don't. I again, like, I really liked it. I don't know why. Wow. I I, th- I just believed that this person is just trying to make it work. And but it's also being supportive, but also not. I don't know. I I really like the performance. I it's so strange because I get what you're saying. He is a wet blanket. He's, he's a wet he's, blanket. He's putting Milk a damper toast. on all the fun shit in this movie. Every time something fun is happening, he's there to be like, "Don't do that." Yeah, yeah. He is the fun police a little bit. I don't know. I just found him believable, and he's a little starchy. But I think. It makes sense that the character's kind I, of I think that Dan way. Futterman's just a bad actor at the base level. Wait, what has he been in other things that you've no, seen? No, I mean I am judging only on this performance, <laughs> but I'm like I don't like this. See, I don't think you're I don't think you're taking crazy pills. Like I get I get why people might have that reaction. I just um something about it was really kind of subtle. That's not even the subtle. right word. Wow. I don't know. I, it was believable. That's the okay. word. Something what? about it for me worked where I was like I'm kind of I'm okay this. with us disagreeing yeah. on this show yeah, yeah. at times. I just like I I'm baffled by. This yeah, tale. it's it's just kind of cool. And you liked Flockhart, right? You like? I think her. she's okay. I don't yeah. have a problem with her in yeah. this. I I mean, I think the character is written poorly, but I I don't yeah. think that she's you know doing anything bad with it. Yeah, I think fine. I think Futterman is taking a character that someone could have brought more. Li- that this is my problem. Someone else could have brought more life to that character than he did. And it, they I don't know if there's it, room in the film for it, though. I disagree. I think like someone with more charisma, like I'm imagining like a Chris Pratt in that role, someone with some like charisma and like like lighter quality to yeah. them. Like those lines don't feel as harsh and degrading as they do in his his mouth. Like yeah. when he's like telling the guys to not add to subtract, it feels like stop being cool like, yeah. to me which is like i don't know I don't no know. i get it but i think that's kind of the point like he's he's asking them to do really difficult things and he knows that he's he's asking i mean robin williams has that great speech when he initially turns his son down for this request he says that great statement of it took me 20 years to kind of figure out that this is who i am i'm not fucking changing because it really kind of points out like this, even though this is kind of could be perceived as sort of a, a hokey old school premise for a comedy film. Oh, mm-hmm. these two, these two gay guys have to pretend to be straight guys. Like that scene specifically really, really th- shows that it's a really painful thing that this, this, this character is asking them to do. Right. And I think the way it's, it's delivered from the son's Fenderman or whatever his name is. Futterman. Futterman. The way he delivers it, like you can kind of see that he's recognizing that this is a painful thing to ask. 
And I kind of I kind of like that. See, I don't know. I I get a vibe that Dan Futterman is ashamed to be in this movie when he's really on screen. Yeah, I don't like th- this. I think he's ashamed to be asking them to do these things. I'm saying when like Nathan Lane's like, "Come on, give give me a hug, like give, give me, me a, a kiss. kiss." Yeah, like it feels it feels like Futterman himself feels awkward doing that. Yeah, but I think I think that's how we would ask act. You know, you and I who come from kind of you know you know heterosexual households. Like if you're coming back from college and your mom asks you for a kiss on the cheek, you might be in that stage in life yeah, where you're like, eh, okay, I'll go, okay. Um, no, that's fair. I yeah. think that's a fair argument. I don't know. I just get I just get a reaction from him that I'm like, I I think you are hating life being in this, and yeah. I don't know why. Yeah. Anyway. yeah interesting. Well, but this last one, <laughs> we got to talk about. I mean, he's he's in big dog contention. He's in kennel. Oh, con- he's in kennel oh, contention. I he's think. He's in the kennel. Big Hank Azaria. Hank Azaria is a fucking legend. He's one of the greatest voice actors of all time. Uh, if you didn't recognize him from this movie, he is the voice of Mo. He's the voice of Chief Wiggum. He's the voice of a bunch of fucking characters on The Simpsons. He Crazy. is a legend of voice acting. How do you feel about him in this movie? And did you know that going in? Uh, I did not know. I had heard. I so my thing I remember him the most from is from like the 1997 Godzilla. I thought he was, I, I, that's a movie I refuse to see again. Saw it as a kid, loved it. It's staying there. It's staying in my, my warm heart, nice memory. And I really liked him in that movie specifically. I had no, I had heard. He's the cameraman in that, right? Yeah, he's like the kind oh, of the like vice. Yeah, he's like kind of like a gonzo cameraman guy, I guess sure. is my memory of it. I had heard the name all the time associated with The Simpsons, and I never had made the connection that that's who the voice belonged to, was him. And when you brought it up, Mo, I specifically Mo, I was baffled because someone like Wiggum and, and other characters, like it's so uh, specific and cartoony that you could kind of imagine anybody doing that voice. Like we could all try to do a Wiggum. It wouldn't be nearly as good, but we could try. Mo is just like this gravelly two pack a day voice that would be really hard to imitate and replicate. And the fact that this is the same guy who's doing this kind of very flamboyant kind of seemingly sort of Hispanic, I guess they say whether it's true or not, because they're in a lie at the time. This is Guatemala. No, no, but he says, he's like my, my Guatemalan heat. Oh, Guatemalan heat. I didn't even catch that he was saying Guatemala on the second viewing. I thought he was just like making up My Guatemalanness. Like Guatemalanness. Um, <laughs> arguably taking the biggest swing of all the performances, maybe. There are a lot of big swings happening. Could have been a disaster. And I feel like I've seen a lot of performances after this that kind of steal from it. I don't know how many came before, if any, uh, but it's it it was really funny. And you talked about how gifted he is as a voice actor. Let's not forget how great he is as a physical comedian. The shoe bit. The shoe bit may be the hardest I laughed in the movie. Just a classic slapstick joke. It got me. So got me hard. Funny. He, you know, they plant the seed that he says shoes make him fall down. He comes in, does like a great stunt fall, walks so clumsily in these shoes and just eats shit it's so funny and it's crazy that's that, because that's like 
to fall I like do that not is wear a gift. shoes because they make me fall down. That 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 was like a Chris Farley level fall. Like he <laughs> sold it. That that was like a real looked like a real fucking fall, man. And he's on with the way he's moving. It's like you know how if you put a cat in a harness or a cat in like boots <laughs> and they move as if they're like wounded and they act like they're like crawling away from a battle and they're so like that's but how they also have moving. the fidgety like like flailing yeah, quality. Like, like they want to escape from this this terrible harness that they're trapped in. Like that's the way he's moving in these shoes. It's yeah. so, so funny. I fucking love Hank Azaria in this movie. And look, as a straight male, I do want to say this could be read as offensive, I would imagine. I would to I you know, it's it's pretty it's pretty fucking like riding stereotypes and is being performed by a straight man, which, you know, we, we do need to acknowledge. But I don't think it bridge it, personally. I don't think it crosses that line. I think yeah. it is so its own cartooniness. You know, it, it's it, it. It just works, man. Yeah. And like and to your point, I mean, the physical fucking comedy of this character is so funny. I mean. Even something just like him in the wig dancing to Gloria Stefan, like like yeah. you know, doing the come on baby, like so fucking hilarious. I I don't know what it is. Like I, every scene that he's in this movie, he is the highlight of it for me. When Nathan Lane is pretending to leave, or I, I can't tell if he's actually intending to leave. Ideal. And he's like, and, and he's getting the hug. He's like, I'm gonna leave you this. No, <laughs> it's like, I'm gonna leave you the red shoes. I don't want it. <laughs> which wigs? And then I'll leave you my wigs. And then which wigs? Well, like that, just like the crying in his shoulder and the muffled, like no. <laughs> this is like really funny <laughs> to me. But um, but definitely like when he when he first came on sca- on camera, I was kind of gritting my teeth a little bit, like e. So this is going to be one of those where it's kind of way too over the top and like kind of insulting and I don't know. I think it's, I, I really do wonder where in the timeline this falls in terms of characters like this. Like we've seen, I've seen, I can't name it, but I know I've seen it before. Sort of kind of over the top gay Hispanic person. Um, if If this was like really an original and he was like kind of the first person to do that and everyone's riffing off of him. Um, then I think that's really cool, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, look, it's probably problematic, but it's one of these problematic yeah. things that I can't help but laugh at. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. A lot of problematic things I can't help but laugh at. Let's add it to the list. Yeah, for me. But I just, I, I think he's so fucking funny Dude, in this movie. Talk about er, like earning a shout out. Like we were talking about doing like a you know end of the year awards. If we're talking about like a non top billing best performance, he could be in the mix potentially. I mean, if we had a category for who made you laugh the most, he'd be he'd up be there up for there me. for you. Oh my! He God. made you laugh more than Hackman. It's sweet and sour peasant soup. Yeah, sweet. Yeah, sweet and sour peasant soup with egg, like a fucking hard boiled egg in it or something. You know what they say about <laughs> South Americans? They always put eggs in everything. Yeah, I'll talk about another great line to pivot into an Elaine May line. The, the sand line. That was the. That's probably the best line in the movie. It it starts with uh, Robin Williams saying, "When we moved here, it was all Jews," and then Diane Weiss says, "Oh, that's funny. My daughter told me that it was all sand." <laughs> Robin Williams says, 
well, you know what they say about Jews, where there's sand. Yeah. <laughs> I, think he, I think it's even cleaner. I think he says, well, you know what they say, where there's sand, and then just <laughs> leaves the ellipse there. <laughs> Dropping this anti-Semitic, yeah. just so. Funny. We're never gonna do justice to no, it. No, no, because it's it's written shit, by Elaine so May funny. and Robin Williams delivered it. So, a couple of people a little bit funnier than us. Can we, <laughs> hold on? If we're talking about delivery of jokes, though, Robin Williams <laughs> chugging the wine and saying, "But let me tell you why." Yeah, when his son says, "Are you upset?" and he's chugging the wine, and then just because it's the, obviously the joke, he's like, "Clearly, he's upset." But let me tell you why. That's a great line. Too. All right. Well, we've talked about all the actors in the movie at this point. Mm-hmm. We love them all. They're fucking great. Uh, except for Dan Futterman or Calista Flockhart, depending on who you talk to in this yeah. podcast. <laughs> and maybe people, listeners out there loved them both. Who knows? Any other topics you want to cover as we kind of get to wrapping up on? Not on really. The I think th- there's a couple of just kind of last shout outs I wanted to give. But in terms of talking about the performances and what we liked about the film, Um, Oh, there was one thing I wanted to say. I wanted to give a shout out to the city of Miami. Okay. So I remember, I don't know how many of them they did, but they did these audio commentaries where Soderbergh interviews Mike Nichols about these films he did. And I think I heard it in the Catch-22 one, or who knows where I heard it from. But Nichols was talking about the ability of a place to all of a sudden make a movie makes sense. And he said he was specifically talking about the birdcage. And he said it was a nightmare to scout. They had, they were having such a hard time trying to find the right place to do this movie. And he said, when they got to Miami, it just like everything made sense. Like, it's like, this is where this movie needs to be. And it seems so, so clear in this movie. I love the way they show Miami in this film, the color palette, the energy, the sort of kind of um, freeish nature of it, you know, very sexually open city. Um, it, it just seems like the perfect thing. And I think Miami really becomes, it's kind of a cliche to say, but it is a character in the film. And it seems like a perfect fit. It's like, yeah, this is where this story, sh- I agree with Mike. This is where it should be. No, I. it's a movie that is very, the, the, the location of the film has such an influence on the rest of the film mm-hmm. that it's like you can't separate this from Miami. If yeah. you take it away from Miami, the movie doesn't work the way that it Dude, does. Imagine this movie even in New York. Yeah. It's just, it, it's I'm not thinking the same. even like a tropical thing like LA. Like it doesn't work. No. There. It's, it's Miami. It's the perfect fit. Has to be Miami. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I think, I think it's a great point. I'm glad that like you brought it up because I think. It's so key to what this movie is. And yeah. um, and they seem to really enjoy filming there. Like a lot of the walking down the street, we were talking about the boat shot on the bench. Like they seem to really revel in what the city provides them with opportunities of what to film. The energy of it, the chaos, the colors, like it all comes across. And I yeah. think they really savored shooting there. No, 100%. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, the love comes through the movie for sure. Um I don't know. Any final wrap up thoughts other than that? I think, I think. No, I mean, I just, there's not, yeah, we don't need to like go deep on this movie. I think like this will be a shorter episode, but I think it's just a good movie. I mean, go watch it. It'll, you'll feel better having watched it. It's a rainy day type movie. Yes. Yeah. If you're, if you're feeling kind of bummed out and it goes to Paul Thomas Anderson's recommendation, Mm -hmm. like uh, it's a feel good movie. If you need a little pick me up, 
it's it's great. I'm really glad that I have it kind of in the holster now. Mm-hmm. You know, I've I've just I'm like I'm feeling kind of shitty. I need something that kind of makes me forget about it and and just be happy for a little while. This movie's really gonna fit the bill for that. I think. Um, just seeing if there's any last little shout outs I wanted to give. Um, when the daughter is is telling Gene Hackman that, that she wants to get married, just the painting of Gene Hackman, the over, looming presence, the looming painting behind her was so funny. That was a great, great shot. framing. There's a lot of good comedic framings in this. Mm, yeah. Well, the, I mean, speaking of which, I mean, the shot of uh, Robin Williams distributing the soup to people as it as it revolves around the table. Yeah. So well done. Beautiful shot. And again, we kind of hinted at it, but it's crazy that a guy coming from the stage has such a knack for for visual flourish. I mean, Catch-22 is stuffed to the rafters with visual flourish. This seems a little more selective, but when he really goes for it, it's like, holy shit. That's an impressive shot, and that was definitely one that I liked too, that rotation one. Mm-hmm. Um, wanted to give a shout-out to Cultural Attaché. <laughs> that is the funniest fake job because – and they make they make, they they make po- they point fun of it throughout the movie. Like, nobody knows what that job is, but we've all heard it. Like we know it. Have we though? I think I've only heard it through this. Oh, I've heard of. I I feel like I've heard it on the news and stuff. It's like a thing, but nobody knows in the world what what it is. It sounds like a fucking like some suitcase or something. I have no idea, but point being, it's such a funny because you know a lot of times people know I'm a huge Seinfeld fan. They may know, like there's running jokes about people inventing jobs and inventing things. Cultural attaché is a perfect fake job. I love it. I don't As know if a that fake was May, job, but that's perfect. It's fantastic. Perfect. Well, yeah, I don't. I don't have anything else really I want to dig into here, but I think like we can leave it at that. I think you know. Bottom line is everyone should go watch the Birdcage. Yeah, super easy to like. Check it out if you haven't seen it. If you have, see it again. It's a awesome good comedy, movie. good straight up comedy made by a fantastic filmmaker and a fantastic writer. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, anyway, let's wrap up there. Um, I think it's time for us to do a little uh, uh, dartboard addition here. Yeah. What do you say? What do, What's going on the board in place of the birdcage today? Yeah, I've got I've got two in mind. Okay. We're gonna we're gonna flip flop between them. You're gonna give me the rundown on both, or are you gonna just go with one? One. Okay, I'll tell you this. One is one that is a very famous movie that I've never seen. I don't okay. know if you've seen it or not. The other was. Something that was just mentioned to me recently. Someone who we started talking about movies. We seem to have a lot of similar sensibilities. He's like, have you seen this? I was like, I don't think I've heard of it. He's like, Someone you trust. A trusted Yeah, I mean, it was an early interaction, but we vibed on movies. Okay. So the famous one that I've never seen is Deliverance. Have you seen Deliverance? I have not. So it's another one that's just known culturally, but I've actually never seen it. Would be kind of cool to see young John Voight again. Kind of an interesting connection with Nichols and Catch-22. And the other one that was mentioned was this movie from the 70s called The Friends of Eddie Coyle, which I guess is some sort of like a gritty, detective-y sort of movie. My gut is Friends of Eddie Coyle, and I'll tell you why. Ooh, okay. This came to me organically. So something someone said. Deliverance I pondered on. This was the universe, was Friends of Eddie Coyle. And the other day, I was banging and listening to the... 
Taking of Pelham 123 soundtrack. And we, while I've been visiting you here, watched a Walter Matthau movie, and that was making me think of Pelham. And I kind of want to get back into that 70s grit a little bit. Okay. And so we know nothing about it. Let me just do a quick quick streaming check before we make it solid. So it looks like, according to what I'm seeing now, a lot of pay to rent available on Amazon Prime, Vudu, Google Play, Apple TV, Pluto. Yeah, it's I mean you Three can bucks. buy it you can buy it for five dollars on Amazon yeah. right now. So. so could be a fun one. Okay. And we'll have to uh we'll have to see. I'm in. I love this uh well, Peter Boyle, we should mention, is uh, the the dad from Everybody Loves Raymond. So, oh, that's awesome. Okay, yeah. so he's going to be in this. Yeah, yeah. This, so this should be fun. This is uh, literally just a, a, someone um, someone I just met recommended it. Like, it seems natural. Let's fucking go. That's what the dartboard's all about. Well, that I think that's the choice. Then, Friends of Eddie Coyle is going on in place of the Birdcage at number fifteen. So let's recap the board as it sits currently. We've got at number one, we've got You Can Count On Me. At number two, we've got Ex Machina. Number three, The Right Stuff. Number four, The Big Sleep. Number five, Operation Condor. Number six, The Sixth Sense. Number seven, Amadeus. Number eight, The Fifth Element. Number nine, Days of Heaven. Number 10, Big Daddy. Number 11, Vertigo. Number 12, The Straight Story. Number 13, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Number 14, The King of Comedy. Number 15, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Number 16, Putney Swope. Number 17, Mother. Number 18, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Number 19, the On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Number 20, The Ballad of Cable Hogue. There it is. All right. Well, since we're doing this recording at my place in Denver, we don't have a dartboard here, so we're going to have to slot in a little bit of a, a dartboard selection at the end of this, but that should uh, flow seamlessly. Yeah. It'll Let's probably go through the, happen. We'll see you in a few days. And it's Let's throw be the fucking right dart. Now. Let's throw the dart. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Drew, through the magic of editing and time travel, the dart has spoken. And what has the dart told us, Jared? The dart has said, 20. The Ballad of Cable Hogue, baby. Wow. I don't even need to look at the list. We're losing our capper. We're losing our capper, but we're going back to the big dog, man. I mean, never gonna say no to, to more big dogs. So I'm I'm very much down for this. It'll actually be my first peck and paw as well. Dude, same here. I mean, I'll save the story for why it's gonna be why how it got on the board and all that shit for the actual episode. But I will be sad to see this name go because it's such a fun sort of end of the list last name capper. So yeah, you're you're gonna have some big shoes to fill, I think, for picking up the movie that is a good twenty name, you know. Yeah, I mean, I've uh, I'm gonna have to put some thought into it. It's uh, it's definitely a big task because it's got to sound right at the end of the the whole list. It's got to have a, some it's got to have some punch to it a little it, bit. Like the name is more important, I think, in either the twenty or the one slot than any other position on the board. No, I, I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. All right. Well, that'll right. do it. Um, and let's go back to our current uh, selves back in the, the present. Beedy!
Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. If you want to keep in touch or if you have a bullseye selection you want to send our way, drop us a line at dartboardmovienight at gmail.com. If it's for the bullseye, make sure you use subject line bullseye confidential. Follow us on Instagram at dartboardmovienight. Artwork for the show is created by Veronica Roman, and all of our music is by Eric Williams. Play us out, Eric. <laughs>